20 years before I joined Archibay, I was a full-time minister of music, which is a title you don't hear too much anymore. It's like a worship pastor. Uh, first, we were in a church outside of Indianapolis, and then we came to Peoria to Grace Presbyterian about uh, 43 years ago. And it was then, after, within months of moving to Peoria, that we heard about Cisna Park because we kept running into people who grew up in Cisna Park. And it's like, where is Cisna Park? Well, we kept running into enough people from Cisna Park. We finally figured out where Cisna Park was, even though finally we're, we're here to see Cisna Park in person. Plus, we have... How many of you would have been around here when Phil Tuttle was the pastor? Does that go back for some of you here? Phil, if you don't know this, um, Phil speaks a lot of our small-town pastors' conferences. We've had him in Morton several times. We've had him out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I think we had him in Texas with us once. Uh, He does a wonderful job relating to small-town pastors, and it's all because of the experience you allowed him to have here many years ago. He talks very fondly of his time with you. Hopefully you've talked fondly of his time with you as well. Well, after joining RHMA, I still had a part-time music position for about 12 years. So it's only been the last dozen years or so that I've exclusively put my time into RHMA, uh, which, among other things, allows me to be available to go out like this on Sunday mornings and help fill a pulpit. That was something we weren't able to do for the, per- for the per- first 32 years of our marriage. And also we get to go spend holidays with kids and grandkids in Detroit and Washington, D.C., which we never could do before because we always had to be here on Sunday when the holidays for all the music. Well, all that to say, church music and singing has had a significant place in my life and my history, my career. And as you can see on the handout, hopefully you got a handout, it's going to be the topic of our message today. It'd be pretty difficult to read through the Bible and not come to the conclusion that, number one, God's people have always been a singing people. Number two, God wants us to be a singing people. And number three, singing is going to play a significant role in eternity. We don't know a whole lot about heaven and what's going on there, and please don't get your information from some of these books that are being written from people who've been there to come back to tell us about it. That's not too reliable. But the one thing we know for sure is that worship through singing is definitely a part of that. Obviously, God's gifted some of us to sing better than others. Uh, Most of us can't sing solos. Some of us wouldn't be able to pass an audition to be in a choir on a worship team. A few of us can do nothing more than make a joyful noise, as the old King James said. But regardless of where we are on that talent spectrum, God in his infinite wisdom has created music, singing, if for no other reason than to allow his creation to sing his praises. And I lament the many, many times over the years that I've stood in front of a congregation leading them in worship and seeing various people just standing there and not participating. And on any given Sunday, any one of us could have a reason for that. I'm speaking of those who just week in and week out never participate. They're missing out on something. Or maybe there's something missing in their relationship with the Lord. Or maybe they have no relationship with him. And just so you know, I didn't spy on any of you, so I'm going to assume all of you are innocent of that charge, okay? Well, let's begin by reviewing several Bible examples of singing. Uh, There's a whole lot more than we could cover in one message. So we're just going to look at a few examples of actual songs that have been preserved for us in Scripture, hopefully you have access to a Bible because we're going to look at a lot of Scriptures this morning. Let's begin in Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. The exodus from Egypt has just taken place. The Israelites have crossed the Red Sea. God has delivered them from Pharaoh and his armies. Let's actually start at the end of chapter 14, verse 30. 
Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Chapter 15, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. And these first 18 verses of chapter 15 contain what's called the Song of Moses. And look what happens right after this congregational song. Go over to verse 20. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, sister of Moses too, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So Miriam sings a solo, repeating the first verse of Moses' song. And I hate to add this, but as wonderful as this celebration is, unfortunately, within a very few verses right here in this chapter, their singing turns to one of their many grumblings, and this time about bitter water. But speaking of water, let's move on. Numbers 21. Numbers 21, verse 17. We have what's called the Song of the Well. Children of Israel are in their wilderness wanderings at this point. Uh, They're in need of water. God provides it for them. Then, verse 17, Israel sang the song. Spring up, O well, sing to it. The well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. Now, scholars tell us this actually may have been more of an existing folk song than a new hymn of some kind, though obviously it's in response here to God's provision for water. All right, go on to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 31. Just so you know, we're not going to cover all 66 books here, all right? Deuteronomy 31, the 40 years of wandering have come to an end. Joshua has been appointed to be the new leader. And now God tells Moses he's going to be dying soon. And after that, Israel is going to go after other gods and kindle God's anger against them. Look at verse 19. We'll start there. Deuteronomy 31, 19. Now, therefore, God says to Moses, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths. They they had to memorize it. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness. It, It will testify against them. For it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote the song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. So God tells Moses, write down this song, teach it to the children of Israel. They all had to memorize. It's a long song. They had to memorize the whole thing. And he says, when I have brought them into the promised land... And they filled themselves and become fat and turned to other gods. This song will testify against them as they sing it. They're going to be testifying against themselves as they sing this song. And chapter 32 contains this long 43-verse memorized song. It's It's a second song of Moses, very different from the first for a very different purpose. It's a song about God's people turning away from him and prostituting themselves to other gods. We'll go on to Judges, Judges chapter 5. Chapter 4, we have the familiar story of Deborah, the only woman judge. Deborah and Barak, her military leader, 
And Jael, remember Jael, the woman who drove a peg through the head of the enemy commander Sisera? And it's the story of how, with God's guidance and help, Israel's been victorious over the Canaanites. What was their response to this victory? Well, we find a song of praise, just like their ancestors 200 years earlier when they escaped the armies of Pharaoh. And what, and what follows in chapter 5 is referred to as the Song of Deborah, or the Song of Deborah and Barak. It appears to be a duet. Look at verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. And the next 30 verses give us this song of praise. All right, we've had some congregational singing, a duet. How about another solo? Let's go on to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 22. Now we're into the era of David here. 2 Samuel 22, look at verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So what we have here, Saul is dead, David's become king, in the chapter before the Philistines have been defeated, and David responds with a hymn of praise. And the song is 50 verses long, it's actually going to end up in the book of Psalms, it's Psalm 18, if you go there and compare you'll see the exact same thing in these two places. Thus the solo of David becomes a congregational song, which is probably true of of most of the songs that he would have written. Okay, we've had solos, a duet, congregational sing. Uh, it's time for a choir, a choir, a rather extraordinary one. Let's go over to Second Chronicles 20. Second Chronicles 20. King Jehoshaphat is leading Judah into battle against their enemies, after leading them in a prayer meeting, by the way. And look at verse 21, Second Chronicles 20, 21. And when he, King Jehoshaphat, had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing. Here's the choir. He appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. Now catch this next phrase. As they went before the army, singing, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. How would you like to have been drafted into that choir? Incidentally, the words they sang came from a song that King David had written 150 years before to celebrate bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. We'll go on to verse 22. And when they began to sing, when the choir began to sing in praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. The choir leads the charge here, becomes the first line of offense as Judah marches into battle. And God gives them the victory as they give him the praise. All right, let's jump to the New Testament for one more example, one last example. Revelation, all the way to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. The scene is in heaven. We have the four living creatures, the 24 elders, falling down before the Lamb, Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain. And they sang a new song, starting in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And this is just one of several examples throughout the book of Revelation of where we see singing in heaven. God's people throughout history have been a singing people. We are to be a singing people. Throughout eternity, we will continue to be a singing people. And I want us to now look at three specific New Testament passages that talk about us today being a singing people, and you'll see them listed on your handout. So first, Ephesians. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15, 
Though even as I say that, I should point out that the end of 14 is probably a hymn sung by the early church. It likely is. You see it kind of set up in a little poem there. So let's start with that. The end of 14. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. All right, now verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, leads to all kinds of evil. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In verse 18, Paul implies that in the same way a person who's drunk comes under the total control of that alcohol and does things that he wouldn't normally do, we likewise need to come under the total control of the Holy Spirit, doing things that aren't natural for us to do, living a supernatural life, a supranormal life. The spirit-filled life is not to be life as usual. Just as an aside, do you remember what happened on Pentecost in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers? They began to speak in other languages. What did the cynics say? They've had too much wine. They're drunk. And Peter had to remind them, come on, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Even if they were drinkers, they wouldn't be drunk yet. So when we come under the total influence of the Holy Spirit, well, what are some of the results of that? Well, verse 21 we're going to be willing, able to willingly submit to each other, be subject to one another. That's something that doesn't come naturally to most of us. Back to verse 20, we're going to be able to give thanks always for all things, bad times as well as the good times. You remember Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But verse 19 is what we're particularly interested in this morning. Paul suggests that singing is an integral part of the spirit-filled life. I find it an interesting irony that in the same way that a drunk is often characterized by singing, you know, drinking songs have been a part of civilization from time immemorial. There's actually a verse in Isaiah that refers to drinking songs. Well, similarly, Paul says a characteristic of a Christian under the influence of the Holy Spirit is singing. So let's take a closer look there at verse 19. Addressing, speaking to one another, the, the Greek verb there speaks of utterances of most any kind, which would include singing. Um, some scholars see this phrase as giving rise to antiphonal singing in the early church, where individuals or groups would sing back and forth to each other. If we, if we had had a scripture reading here where I'd read a verse and you'd all read a verse back and we'd go back and forth, that's called responsive reading. If we split you down the middle and had you take turns back and forth, that'd be antiphonal. So that's what the word antiphonal means here, groups back and forth singing to each other. There's actually a second century document that in which Pliny, the Roman governor of Bithynia, what's today up in Turkey, he was told of Christians in his province who were in the habit of meeting a certain day of the week, Sunday. They met before daylight to avoid persecution. And what were they doing? Reciting a hymn antiphonally to Christ as if he were God, accused of singing to Christ as if he were God. We could be accused of that this morning, couldn't we? So, addressing one another. Here in verse 19, that could be antiphonal singing, or it could simply mean singing together a song which we're addressing each other rather than singing directly to God. 
Uh, that would have happened this morning in the doxology. Most of the doxology song that we sang, we were singing to each other about those various facets. It wasn't until we got to the Alleluia where we actually were directing that to God himself. But either way, whether directly to God or to each other, we're doing it, verse 19, with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Psalms, that would be our Old Testament book of psalms, maybe some newer psalm-like songs in the New Testament. Hymns, that word in the classical Greek means a festive lyric in praise of a god or a hero. In other words, in this context, a song of praise to God. And then spiritual songs, Bible scholars tell us no one knows for sure what these are. There's lots of speculation. Song simply means song. Putting spiritual in front of it makes it a song about God, or maybe it's alluding to being spirit-filled. That's the context of this passage right here. Some scholars suggest spiritual songs are totally extemporaneous, just made up as you go, new every time, something little kids are good at. Maybe the distinction is that a hymn is a song of praise to God, while a spiritual song is one we sing to each other about God, about the Christian life. If I sing, my Jesus, I love thee, I'm singing to him. If I sing, oh, how I love Jesus, I'm telling you that. That's, that's the difference there. We don't know exactly what the distinctions are, but at least it appears a, a variety of singing and songs being used in worship back in the early church. All right, look back at verse 19, the next phrase. Singing and making melody to the Lord, so this time directly addressing God, in contrast to addressing one another, so both appear to be appropriate in our worship. Next phrase, with your heart, with all your heart, not, not just praise from the lips. The Lord's not interested in lip service. He, he wants it from the heart. You remember what Christ said about the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees? He's actually quoting God himself from back in Isaiah. They draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. But what? Their heart is far from me. And then Jesus adds these words. In vain they worship me. In vain they worship. Jeremiah made a similar indictment when he said this. God is always on their lips but far from their hearts. Always on their lips, but far from their hearts. May that never be true of us. Singing and making melody with your heart. Did you notice the quote at the bottom of your handout? This is from Enrico Caruso, one of the greatest opera singers of all time. Don't confuse that with the Grand Ole Opry. Those are two different things, okay? Let me give you the full quote here. The requisites of a singer, a big chest, a big mouth, 90% memory, 10% intelligence, lots of hard work, and... Something in the heart. Something in the heart. Caruso, the secular singer, knew the importance of singing from the heart. And Christ tells us it's absolutely essential if we're singing to him, otherwise we're singing in vain. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, agrees, sing with your heart. So does David. Look at the quote there above the Caruso quote there at the bottom of your handout. I will sing and make melody with all my being. So what does this passage teach us? Well, among other things, that a spirit-filled Christian is a singing Christian. And if you want to fill in the blanks on your handout, number one, the spirit-filled Christian sings. The spirit-filled Christian sings. All right, let's move on to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. Paul has been teaching doctrine in the first couple chapters here, and now he's going to turn to application. You know, James reminds us it's not enough to be hearers of the word. We need to be doers as well. Right doctrine is important, but so is living it out. And Paul lists all kinds of things here in chapter 3 that should or should not characterize the believer in his everyday walk. 
Let's pick it up at verse 15, Colossians 3:15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, verse 16, the word of Christ is the only place you'll find that phrase in Scripture. It speaks of Christ's teaching, of course. But by extension, it would also refer to the Old Testament, from which Christ often quoted, whose authority he confirmed, and the rest of the New Testament, which was written by his disciples under the inspiration of his Holy Spirit. So what are we to do with this word of Christ? Let it dwell in you. Feel at home, become a permanent part of you, not not just a Sunday visitor. May I suggest that the Christian who never opens his Bible from Monday through Saturday is not indwelt with the word of Christ. Paul gets even more specific than that. Let it dwell in you richly, in abundance, overflowing extravagantly. Remember Psalm 119.11? Your word have I stored up, hidden, treasured in my heart, that I might not sin against you. If I'm treasuring God's word, it's going to be dwelling in me richly. Now, what's going, to be, what's going to be the outcome of that indwelling? Well, the phrasing varies with your translation. I'm using the ESV here, just so you know. But let's start with the words, in all wisdom, the wisdom that comes from Christ's indwelling word. Jeremiah 8, God speaks of false teachers. He says this, the wise men, so-called, are ashamed. Why? Because they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Wise men with no wisdom. How sad. Our wisdom is based on God's word. If his word is dwelling in us richly, we'll not be lacking in wisdom. Well, continuing on, besides wisdom, what's going to be the outcome of being filled with the word of Christ? A couple things, again, depending on your translation. Teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching and imparting the truths of scripture. This is a positive thing as opposed to admonishing. Admonishing is more of a negative warning of consequences, but still equally valid and needed. Keep in mind, both of these are coming from word-filled wisdom. Next phrase, and this will be a familiar one, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, scholars can't be sure. Different translations will do this different ways. Can't be sure if Paul's saying we're to use psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to teach and admonish, or if we're to teach and admonish, and we're to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Well, the reality, of course, is both happen. There's plenty of teaching and admonishing apart from singing. We're hopefully doing that right now. Uh, There's plenty of teaching and admonishing while we're singing. We did some of that earlier. You know, it was common in the early church to use hymns to teach sound doctrine. They didn't have Bibles. Everybody would take one home with them like we get that privilege. And so they would use the songs, the hymns, to teach the doctrines of Scripture. They may be in the form of praise, but at the same time they're teaching us or reminding us of what we've already learned concerning God and his word. We found that uh, in, our, in our first song this morning, singing about God's free grace, singing about our canceled debt. In fact, as we sang through that song, almost every line, a verse comes to mind where they would have gotten that line from. It's all scripture throughout there, teaching us or reminding us. We sang this, the doxology at the end, the reminder of the teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity. Some songs teach us. Other songs are warning us or admonishing us to right living. You know, this is one reason why it's so important 
that our hymns and choruses be biblical, be scripturally accurate. I mean, it's just as wrong for me to stand up here and sing a scriptural distortion to you as it is for me to get up here and preach a scriptural distortion to you. But for some reason, we seem to be more forgiving of musicians, which I was glad back in my musician days, than we are the preachers. As long as we enjoy the music, we don't worry too much about the words sometimes. Or maybe we've been enjoying the music so much, we really haven't paid attention to what the words say. You know, we have to be careful of this just as much in our day as ever. Most of the enduring hymns from over the centuries were written by pastors, Bible scholars, Sunday school teachers, teachers, people who had the word of Christ dwelling richly in them. They had a firm grasp of scripture and a walk with the Lord that goes along with that. And they often had difficult circumstances through which they grew in that walk with the Lord and out of which they wrote their songs. You know, the, a quintessential example of that is the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Let me just remind you of the circumstances behind that. The author was a wealthy lawyer, real estate investor up in Chicago. In 1870, his four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. A year later, the great Chicago fire took away most of his wealth. Two years after that, his wife and four daughters were on a ship to England. He was going to join them later. The ship sank off the shore of Great Britain. All four daughters drowned. Only the wife remained. And as he took the next ship to England to be with his grieving wife, he wrote those words, When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Well, one more line back in verse 16. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Remember in Ephesians 5, the spirit-filled Christian gives thanks always for all things. Here we see that the word-filled Christian sings with thankfulness. So, number one, the spirit-filled Christian sings. Number two on your handout, the word-filled Christian sings. All right, finally, James, chapter 5, verse 13. James 5, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. On the surface, that verse seems pretty self-explanatory, doesn't it? If you're going through a time of trials, what should you do? Pray. If things are going well, you're having a mountaintop experience, what should you do? Unlike the children of Israel who filled themselves, grew fat, and forgot God, we're to sing songs of praise to him. So either way, you're going to the Lord, whether to express a need for his help or simply to thank him for his goodness. Both are natural, appropriate responses. I would suggest, however, there might be a little more to the second part of the verse. The Greek word translated cheerful or happy, merry, in the old King James, it's only found in one other place in the New Testament. I want you to look at it. Go to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. Here's the story of Paul, the prisoner, being taken on a ship to Rome for his appeal before Caesar. A fierce storm comes up. It looks like certain shipwreck and death. Let's begin reading in verse 20, Acts 27, 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. Remember whenever you see the word us in Acts, who wrote Acts? Luke. Now, Luke wasn't usually with Paul, all his missionary journeys, but he's with him here on this trip to Rome. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and he said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take 
heart. Take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Verse 25, So take heart, men. Take heart. For I have faith in God. It will be exactly as I have been told. But first, we must run aground on some island. All right, go down to verse 35. Paul had told them they need to eat before we get shipwrecked here. Everybody eat. So when he had said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it, began to eat. Verse 36, then they all, the sailors, were all encouraged. They were encouraged, and they ate some food themselves, even though they knew shipwreck was still ahead. Verse 22, I urge you to take heart. Keep up your courage. Verse 25, so take heart, men. Keep up your courage. Verse 36, then they were all encouraged. They took heart. James 5.13, is anyone cheerful? Is he taking heart? Is he encouraged? It's the same Greek word used in both of those passages, Acts and James. Were things going well for the sailors at this point in Acts? Were they having a mountaintop experience? Well, obviously not. If anything, they'd be fearful of an ocean bottom experience right about now. And a comparison of these two passages would indicate that the Greek word there, euthumeo, would have similarities to the word joy. Joy, a fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5.22. You know, joy is often contrasted with happiness. Um, happiness depends on the happenings around you, your circumstances. If all's well, you're happy. However, joy is something you can have despite your circumstances. It's an inner happiness, unaffected by the outer surroundings. It's not a natural thing. It's a fruit of the spirit. Most of us have met Christians who have exhibited this kind of joy in difficult times. I need to throw this in as an aside. That Greek word, euthumeo, can be literally translated, well soul. Well soul. Does that remind you of a song? Whatever my lot, whether peace like a river or sorrows like the billowing sea, I was taught me to say it is well with my soul. A well soul. Well, back to James 5. The fact that the same word is used in these two passages would suggest that when James asks if any of you is cheerful, he's not necessarily contrasting it with the suffering Christian in the first part of the verse. Obviously, obviously it's appropriate for a happy Christian to express his thankfulness to the Lord through singing his praises. But even a non-Christian can do that. What separates the natural man from the spiritual man is the ability to sing God's praises through the times of suffering as well. You know, the classic example of this is Paul on a second missionary journey, Acts 16. We won't take time to look it up. I'll just remind you, he and Silas are evangelizing the Roman colony of Philippi. One day they cast a demon out of a girl who was a fortune teller. Her masters are so upset they get into the town into an uproar. Paul and Silas are severely beaten with rods on their bare backs. They're thrown in jail into an inner cell, apparently the most secure one available. Their feet are put in stocks. And then we read this. At midnight, Paul and Silas... We're praying. James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is that all that Paul and Silas were doing? No. It says they were praying and singing hymns to God. James says, is anyone cheerful? Is, is his soul well, regardless of what his body may be going through? Let him sing praise. 
Paul and Silas were at that moment experiencing Job 35.10. God, my maker, gives songs in the night. Psalm 42.8. In the night his song shall be with me. Is anyone well of soul? Let him sing praise. The title of today's message actually comes from a song written over 150 years ago. If you turn your hand out over to look on the back, you'll find the whole song. But look at stanza two on that back side. Stanza two. What though my joys and comforts die, the Lord my Savior liveth. What though the darkness gather round, songs in the night he giveth. No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that refuge clinging. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? Number three on your handout, the joy-filled Christian sings. The joy-filled Christian. Is singing an option in the Christian's life? I don't think so. Why? Because if you're spirit-filled, if you're word-filled, if you're joy-filled, singing is a natural response to all that. You know, if you're up on your church history, you may remember that, unfortunately, for many centuries leading up to the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, there was almost no congregational singing. It was all done by priests and choirs. And one of the hallmarks of the Reformation was Martin Luther giving the music back to the people. Congregational singing became an integral part of the Protestant church. If I'm not a singing Christian, maybe I need to ask myself some questions. And I ask these questions with the assumption I am a Christian, I am a believer, I've been born again. There's a point in my life where I trusted Christ as my Savior. And if you're here this morning and you haven't done that, uh, that's what needs to be taken care of for you, that everything else we've said is secondary for you. That's the decision you need to make. But if I am a Christian, but not a singing Christian, question one, am I a spirit-filled Christian? Am Am I walking in the spirit? Do I seek and experience his filling in my life day by day? Question two, am I a word-filled Christian? Now, how important is God's word in my life? Am I treasuring it? Am I storing it up in my heart? Or am I content with just whatever I pick up Sundays here at church? Question three, am I a joy-filled Christian? How, How am I responding to the circumstances of life? Am I experiencing the joy and the peace that are available to me despite the trials? And what about those mountaintop experiences God allows me to joy. Am I quick to praise the Lord for them, or am I like the children of Israel, entered the promised land, grew fat and satisfied, and basically forgot the Lord until they got in trouble and needed his help? A spirit-filled Christian, a word-filled Christian, a joy-filled Christian is a singing Christian. And God help us to have a singing heart, regardless of our musical ability. And if we're not there yet, May he bring us along in our walk with him to the point where singing is just a natural, spontaneous response to who he is and his love and his care for us. Let's pray. Lord, we know that not all of us are called and gifted to be up front leading, singing, providing music, but all of us are called to praise you. And singing is something you've created to allow us to carry out that high calling. Help us to be a singing people. Not just here on Sundays, but as we go our separate ways through the week. May we seek to walk in the Spirit, be Spirit-filled, not grieve Him, not quench Him. Convict us of the importance of being in your Word day in and day out, being being Word-filled. So it can be a, a lamp and a light as we walk through this increasingly dark world. 
And for those of us here today who are experiencing various trials, may we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us with his peace and his joy, be joy-filled, so that we too can experience those songs in the night. We'd ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.